This is a quick disclaimer. I hint at some adult themes in this episode. It's not explicit at all, but if that's something that concerns you, I wrote about it on the website. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're wrapping up the current story of Lancelot. If last week's episode wasn't warning enough, you'll see why you really shouldn't get into cars with evil-looking mythological creatures. Also, reality dating shows have nothing on the Middle Ages. On the Creature of the Week, it's a whole race of creatures named William, and they are all super passive-aggressive. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 41C. It's complicated. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This is part three of the Lancelot story. If this is your first time hearing the podcast, you'll want to start at episode 41A. Previously on the podcast, Lancelot was raised by Vivian, the Lady of the Lake, who lived in Brittany. She was hiding out from Merlin, who tried to seduce her when she was 12 with some magic tricks. Lancelot went to King Arthur's court and had an awkward interchange with Guinevere, fell in love with her, was knighted, and left on adventures. Vivian ran into Merlin, and they had a bit of a heart-to-heart, with her agreeing to try their relationship again in a year, if Merlin was still interested. When that year passed, Merlin left King Arthur for the last time, to go find love. A year later, in Lancelot's story, Guinevere was kidnapped, when Kay bit off a bit more than he could chew. Lancelot and Gawain went after the pair, with them splitting up to take separate routes. After a mysterious young woman pointed them in the right direction, Gawain was going to take the underwater bridge and Lancelot the sword bridge. After many adventures, Lancelot got about halfway across the sword bridge before he slipped. And that's where we'll pick back up with the story, with him dangling on the edge. Blood streamed down Lancelot's forearm and into his armor. He didn't look down, but he could hear the waves crashing against the rocks. He would die if he dropped. He would probably die if he stayed hanging here, and he would definitely die if he had to face those lions at the other end. Things were not going well for Lancelot. Still, he knew Guinevere was watching him. He knew she was safe. He wasn't going to die here. He started swaying on the sword bridge, with the blade digging into his hand with each sway. Eventually, he was able to hook and subsequently cut a foot on the bridge, and then he strained while holding the blade, pulling himself and 50 pounds of armor until he was back on the sword. He didn't try to get up and walk after that. His hands and feet were already cut. He just had to get off this bridge. He went as fast as he could, gripping the sides with his hands and pushing along with his feet until he approached the point. He was feeling lightheaded now from lack of blood and he rose to his feet as he approached the end. He was feeling really weak at this point, and he had just enough energy to put his hand to his sword and fall forward, right into the path of the lions. Lancelot didn't know it was more surprising as he laid face down in his armor. The silence, or that the lions were not eating his face. He struggled until he was able to look at them and saw just the rear halves of the cats but the front halves weren't there. Then he knew. He waved his hand around, and as he moved it closer to the beasts, they disappeared. It was the ring that Vivian had given him. It nullified enchantments and illusions. The beasts were never there to begin with. The last thought Lancelot had before passing out was that he was happy he had been saved from cats just in time to die of blood loss. His hands and his feet were tight and Lancelot was only half awake. He was in a bed and down the hall he heard something. I'm gonna fight him. I'm really gonna fight him. Lancelot heard a man say. I don't care what you say. Once again, son, an older voice said. I'm very much going to go on record saying that this is a terrible idea. You're completely in the wrong kidnapping Queen Guinevere as well as Arthur's foster brother. Even though I am opposed to all of this, morally and otherwise, and have the power to stop it, I'm just going to complain about it for a while, and then let you fight this young man to the death, just so long as you give him some time to heal, before you kill him in front of everyone. Fair enough, the younger man said, and they parted. 
Now, I paraphrase what was not just an interaction between King Badamagu and his son, Malagant, but several pages of them arguing about what to do with Lancelot. Malagant was the knight who kidnapped Guinevere and Kay, and he didn't want Lancelot to leave alive. The king entered Lancelot's room. Good news! I was able to delay the fight a couple of months, until you heal. If we play our cards right, we can delay it longer, and I can sneak the three of you out of here, no problem. Uh, hi, Lancelot said. Lancelot learned that even though Malagant was the son of King Badamagu, Badamagu thought he was just horrible. He disagreed with the whole kidnapping and imprisonment of women thing, and as soon as Guinevere showed up, King Badamagu put her in her own private wing, where Malagant and the others couldn't get near her. Badamagu didn't know who'd win in a fight between Lancelot and Malagant, but he didn't want this obviously very brave and capable knight to kill his son. Lancelot insisted on killing the man's son, though. But he would take his time to heal. One day, exactly. Lancelot just had deep gashes on his hands and feet. And it's not like you need your hands and feet to fight someone to the death. Lancelot was being killed. Malagant, whose arms rippled with muscles, it's said in one of the books, was hammering downward with his sword. Sidebar, it says exactly that his legs, arms, and feet rippled with muscles. Basically, I'm picturing the rock with more muscular feet. Even if he didn't tower over Lancelot, the deep cuts in Lancelot's hands and feet were not helping. They were both in full armor but the sword had gotten around it from time to time and made small yet painful cuts. Lancelot's white armor was red, and he was going to fall soon. He would die here, in service of his queen. Then, he heard his name. The name that no one knew except him, and it was a woman's voice. He turned around and saw the woman he loved at the window. It was Guinevere. She was calling to him. Sidebar, we aren't told how she knows his name but let's just pretend the monk who was with him when he lifted the slab saw the name and blabbed it to everyone so we can just kind of move on and not have to deal with it. Back to the fight, in Lancelot's moment of distraction, he took a hard hit on the shoulder from Malagant's sword and went down, but it didn't matter. As a listener, I've largely spared you from pages and pages of talk about the love Lancelot has for Guinevere, with love always being capitalized, about how it gives him strength and power and hope and honor and... Blah. It's probably the worst part about the writing of Creation Detroit's. That and the stories never seem to finish. Anyway, here's one of those instances where it actually fits pretty well with the story. Lancelot saw Guinevere, so not only does he know she's watching, but now he has a reason. He can do this. He stood and faced Malagant. Lancelot began hacking at his opponent, and it was difficult at first, but Guinevere yelling in support made all the difference. Slowly, he was able to turn Malagant until the very muscular knight had his back to Guinevere, and Lancelot could see her. The young knight, in formerly white armor, gripped his sword, reopening the cuts in his hand. But he was like a man possessed. He blocked Malagant's attacks almost before they happened, and in moments, he had cut the knight in all the right places. Malagant was flagging, and soon he dropped. Lancelot had only to finish him. Then... He heard Guinevere yelling that he should spare the knight, that he should stop fighting. Of course, it was all King Badamagu's doing. He didn't want either to die, and he liked Guinevere and disapproved of his son kidnapping her. He knew that seeing Guinevere would give Lancelot strength, and so he rushed the queen to the window at the last moment. He was hoping for a draw, though, and had to backpedal a bit when Lancelot almost killed his son. He got Guinevere to convince Lancelot to spare the boy and now everything would be okay. Except that he saw his son stand to his feet and kick Lancelot in the chest. When the young man went down, Malagant stood over him, striking him repeatedly with his sword and kicking him in the ribs. Lancelot blocked as best he could, but he didn't hit back. Guinevere, his queen, had told him not to, and he was her knight. King Badamagu told his son to seriously stop it. I imagine a fairly awkward interchange took place, where the king and his son argued in front of the assembled knights and ladies who just wanted to watch two grown men hack each other to death. At the end of it, 
Mulligan decided that he wouldn't win this thing if Lancelot actually fought back. He agreed to let Guinevere leave, under the condition that they fight again, one year from today, at Camelot. If Lancelot failed then, then Meligant could take Guinevere, and no one would ever be able to come after her again. Everyone agreed that this was a good idea. Everyone except Guinevere, of course, because who cares what she, the person who would be taken, thought about that. The king agreed to release the remaining captives, with good guy Badamagoo not really addressing why they were there to begin with. Lancelot thanked the king when the older man made his way out to the battlefield. The king himself helped Lancelot to his feet and directed him inside. After all this time, Lancelot was going to see the woman he loved. He was going to talk to the queen. He saw her approach from a distance and it took his breath away. Hers was the face he saw in his dreams. When things were hard on the trip here or when he was tempted to stop, he only had to remember their scant few conversations to spur him onward. Now he had rescued her. He would get to see her. She walked toward him and passed him with an eye roll. She entered her room and Lancelot heard the door lock behind her. He was then informed by one of her ladies that she had no desire to talk to him. Lancelot was hurt and annoyed and really confused. He figured that she and the other captives would have to return to Camelot with him so she couldn't stay in her room forever. Then he learned that they would not be leaving for Camelot right away because Gawain hadn't showed up yet. Gawain, who took the very inaccurately named Underwater Bridge, still hadn't arrived, and the queen refused to leave without the famous knight. Lancelot stayed a couple of days and healed a bit before setting out to look for Gawain. He was thoroughly confused and distracted about Guinevere when he left, and that could have been why he didn't take any armor, or weapons, or other knights. King Badamagoo told Lancelot that he could travel safely in the king's lands, but the king didn't happen to tell anyone else in his lands, at least not right away. Lancelot was captured a couple days out in his search for Gawain, and the message got a little garbled on its way back to King Badamagoo, in basically a medieval game of telephone. The king learned that Lancelot was dead, purple monkey dishwasher. Guinevere took it hard. Snubbing him had been a joke, kind of. She had heard about him in the cart, about how it took two extra steps for him to climb aboard and take on that terrible shame in order to come find her. She was just going to give him a hard time about it, but he left so quickly seeking for Gawain that she didn't get to tell him that it was just a joke. I get the joke, but maybe, I don't know, wait until his wounds heal from battle in which he was fighting for your freedom or until they scab over. It was really poorly timed and now he was dead. Guinevere stopped eating. It got so bad that she refused to get out of bed. That young man had died, and he didn't know how grateful she was. She cared for him, too. Out of all the knights on King Arthur's court, he was the only one to show up here, the only one to fight for her freedom, and now he was gone. And he had left so soon because of her. She almost wanted to die herself. Meanwhile, the people who had captured Lancelot were bringing him, proudly, back to the king, a few days later, they arrived with Lancelot in chains. They were promptly executed for not following an order they didn't know about, and Lancelot was released. Lancelot, though, was angry. He had days in solitude to think about the queen, and, and now he had to know why she had refused to talk to him the last time he was here. He didn't wait for her to find him or send him a servant. He had to know right now. Still in the clothes he had been wearing for days, he went straight to her room. Her servants were there when Lancelot stormed in and she forced them out into the anteroom, where Kay was recovering. Real quickly, Kay had been beaten pretty badly by Malagant and taken captive too, so he's been just lying in bed the whole time, trying to keep conscious and not bleed to death, while medieval medicine works its magic. When Lancelot stormed in, he had expected the queen to be angry with his impudence, but she hadn't even heard he was still alive. She rushed to the knight and embraced him, actually holding Guinevere, the woman he had loved from a distance for a year, in his arms, Lancelot's mood changed. When she realized the servants could see, Guinevere stepped back to an appropriate distance and told Lancelot that she was happy he was alive. He had inquired about the snub, and she told him that it was just a stupid joke and apologized. He apologized about taking two extra steps before getting into the cart, and they were reconciled. 
They sat and talked and he told her all about the journey he had undertaken to rescue her and she had seen his fight with Malagant. They were getting along great and then Lancelot thought that he was maybe too bold in saying this, but he didn't care. He had almost died twice for her. He looked to the door and the servants waiting just beyond and asked if there was anywhere more private they could speak. He saw a smirk creep onto the queen's face. Private, she said, or nearly in my bedroom. Nearly, she whispered. It was barely audible to Lancelot, and the servants at the door couldn't hear it at all. Guinevere turned and looked at the window. There were thin iron bars on it, and she remarked, still in a whisper, about how great the view of the orchard was. Her door was locked at night, of course, but some night she would just look out at the orchard all night, and if there happened to be anyone outside of her window, she could talk to them through the bars. This person would have to be quiet and discreet and careful that no one saw him, and Guinevere remarked how she always had to be quiet at night, because Kay slept in the connecting room. He had insisted on it to watch over his queen. Of course, he was still recovering from his fight when Guinevere had been taken, so he was bedridden and wouldn't be barging in or anything like that. Then, without warning, she began talking loudly again and informed the good knight that she appreciated his service and they would wait until Gawain returned to leave for Camelot. She summoned a servant to let Sir Lancelot, is it, out of the room. Good day. Lancelot's head was swimming as he sat around in eager excitement, waiting for nighttime. When it finally came, he was as quiet as possible when he ducked around the bushes and trees in the orchard until he saw her window. He wedged his feet between the stones and pulled himself up to her barred window. Looking in, he thought better of trying to whisper inside, but he only had to cling to the bars for a few moments. He saw her emerge from the darkness. She was wearing a white shift, something that ranges from a long sleeping shirt to a short dress, and she had a short mantle around her, or like a short cape that goes down around the small of the back. She walked straight to him, and she grabbed the hand that wasn't holding a bar and held it stroking it gently. She moved her hand up and held his face. His heart leapt. This was happening? This was happening. They talked for a long while, holding hands through the bars, free from the restraints of propriety. They were free to get closer than Lancelot ever dreamed. Both had thought they lost the other. Lancelot began to hint at his feelings for her. She said she realized she felt differently about him when she thought he was dead. He was the only one to come fight Malagant. Then, Lancelot took a deep breath and tried to kiss her. And he hit his head on the bar. They paused for a moment to hear if Kay would awaken. If Lancelot would have to drop down from the window and risk even more injuries for her. But Kay didn't. Then, Guinevere said something that nearly made Lancelot faint. She said that she wished the bars weren't here. She wished that he could come inside. I can bend these bars right now, Lancelot said, probably too eagerly. Guinevere paused for a half second and then said okay. She would need to go get back in bed in case Lancelot was too loud and woke Kay, who was just through the open doorway. Lancelot said there was absolutely no way he was going to be too loud and screw this up. Go lay down. I will be right there. Lancelot strained super quietly against the bars. He had gone through so much for her, he would pull all night if he needed to. He thought his heart skipped a beat when he felt the bars begin to bend. He didn't feel it because of his excitement, but the scabs on his hands tore open. He gritted his teeth and pulled and pulled until it was time for him to, with a lot of effort, squeeze through the bars. Then, he was in the room. He could see her, sitting up in bed in the moonlight. He went to the door to the room where Kay slept, and quietly shut it before going to join Queen Guinevere. And we'll see that this little development will almost immediately put Lancelot and Guinevere in mortal danger right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Blue Apron. If you don't already know, Blue Apron is a service that will send you awesome, easy to do seasonal recipes and all the pre-portioned ingredients to be able to make those recipes. These are professionally developed recipes with fresh, sustainably sourced ingredients. It comes every Friday for me and it's fun to get excited about cooking again as you unbox the ingredients for the week. So I don't know if you knew this, but in cities in medieval England, 
food could cost up to two-thirds of a laborer's wages, and it wasn't super easy to come by. And when it was, well, I hope you like boiled cabbage and a lot of hopefully not moldy rye bread. It's not the Middle Ages, though. Hopefully you knew this. And Blue Apron, for less than $10 a meal, will send you meals with way more variety than just boiled cabbage. They also have free delivery to 99% of the continental United States and 99.5% of food deserts. You can go to blueapron.com legends and check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping. That's like almost a day of wages for a medieval English laborer. Free. So yeah, you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com legends. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, now back to the show. Early the next morning, Guinevere kissed Lancelot. The castle was just starting to wake up, and he needed to leave, now. He looked at her one last time, exhaled as much as he could, and squeezed through the bars. Just before the sun rose, he bent the bar back and climbed down into the orchard. The queen went back to sleep. Because he was apparently allowed supervised visits, Malagant, the muscly-footed knight who kidnapped her in the first place, entered Queen Guinevere's room late the next morning. She was still sleeping, but he noticed something on her sheets. It was blood. He thought it was odd, but then he noticed a trail of dry blood going to Kay's door, which was closed. Malagant thought that Kay was recovering. Now, he began to suspect that there was something going on between Arthur's wife and brother. The blood was, not at all, irrefutable proof that Kay had been in Guinevere's bed. It really didn't help that Kay's wounds had reopened in the night, and so his bed was spotted with blood as well. Malagant twirled the mustache he no doubt had, because he was so cruel and evil, and he called in the guards to take the sheets. If he couldn't have Guinevere, then he would see her shamed and executed for adultery. No one really believed Kay had done it. He could still barely move, and Guinevere insisted that the blood was from a really, really bloody nose. Malagant demanded a trial by combat for Kay, but he was in too much pain. That's when Lancelot appeared in the doorway. He would fight for his king's brother, a man he knew to be innocent of this charge. Don't worry how he was so sure Kay didn't sleep with the queen last night, that's irrelevant. He will take Kay's place and fight Malagant in a trial by combat. Again. King Badamagoo rolled his eyes. Seriously, he had just convinced them to stop doing this. Lancelot and his opponent both swore on holy relics. Malagant that Kay had slept with the queen, and Lancelot that Kay had not slept with the queen. Don't worry about the weird emphasis he put on Kay. Now they would fight and let God reveal the truth. The fight went much better for Lancelot this time, what with not having massive gashes on his hands and feet, and not coming right off fighting his way across Great Britain. It's said that they hit each other so hard with swords that sparks flew from their helmets. Guinevere and King Badamagoo, again, didn't want their sides to die, so they both agreed to stop the fight. When Lancelot heard that Guinevere didn't want him to fight, he stopped fighting in the middle, and then King Badamagoo just called off the whole thing. Since they both survived, no side had won, but the king believed Guinevere about the bloody nose. So the whole thing was just dropped. Malagant put one muscly foot in front of the other, on his way over to Lancelot, and told him he would see him in a year, in Camelot. Almost one year from the day that Lancelot and Malagant had fought, Malagant sat on his horse before Gawain in Camelot. Gawain being the one who would fight him for Guinevere in Lancelot's absence. No one had seen Lancelot in a year since he had fought for Guinevere's honor. He had left looking for Gawain and disappeared that day. The pair, Malagant and Gawain, were pretty evenly matched and no one really knew who the winner would be. Then they heard the thudding of hooves on the ground. Before anyone knew what was going on, another knight had entered the battlefield in full, shining armor. He sat on his horse between Gawain and Malagant. He pulled off his helmet and threw it to the ground. It was Lancelot, back from the dead. We'll back up and talk about what Lancelot did over the past year. He disappeared just hours after he defeated Malagant the second time. 
he told Guinevere and Kay that he was going to search for Gawain, who still hadn't arrived after taking the underwater bridge to get to Badamagoo's castle. Lancelot will be right back, he told Guinevere, them looking deeply into each other's eyes. With that, he left with a group of King Badamagoo's knights. This is where things kind of start to go off the rails a bit. A few hours outside King Badamagoo's castle, they saw an evil-looking dwarf riding a cart. Despite that really not working out well for Lancelot's reputation the last time, the dwarf promised to take him to a very wonderful place. And that's all he said, a very wonderful place. A very wonderful place sounding very wonderful. Lancelot went with the evil dwarf and was not seen by those men again. Those knights found Gawain bobbing in the sea, alive but just barely. He had failed in his crossing of the underwater bridge and he had been adrift in the sea for a while now, his armor having rusted around him. They dragged him out, told him everything that had happened in the past few days and they helped him back to Badamagoo's castle. Everyone waited for Lancelot with Guinevere, Kay, Gawain and King Badamagoo in deep anxiety. They were all surprised when an absolutely real message came from Lancelot at Camelot saying he had just gone home and that everyone from Arthur's kingdom should come too. When they arrived, everyone was surprised and heartbroken to find that the message had been forged. No one had heard from Lancelot for weeks. After the evil dwarf rode off with him, kids, that's why you don't get into a car with an evil looking mythological creature, even if he promises to take you to a very wonderful place. Life went on in Camelot with Guinevere in a deep depression over the disappearance of Lancelot. Guinevere though, having a husband and a very handsome knight on the side was not the only one with too many choices. The well-to-do young woman in the land wanted to get married, but there were simply too many talented, brave and good-looking men they lighted on a solution. They would have the men fight it out, and they would pick whomever was left standing at the end. The women scheduled a tournament. Like I said, Lancelot was a captive, and it should not surprise you at all to learn that it was Malagant who had arranged the evil dwarf driver and his vague promises. Lancelot was just shut up in some manor somewhere, though, on the estate of one of Malagant's lords. Malagant barely stopped by, and one time when the lord was out, the lady of the castle brought Lancelot his food, and casually mentioned the tournament. Despite being in love with his king's wife, Lancelot knew he must go. Not because of the young ladies, though, but because he knew Guinevere would be there. The lady of the castle said, Well, you're supposed to be a captive. If I let you out, you have to promise to return after the tournament. And also give me your love. Lancelot said that as long as he was permitted to go to the tournament, he would come back and give her whatever she wanted. She lent him her husband's armor, it was bright red, and said that it was obvious that he was in love with someone else. But she would take whatever scraps of his love that she could get when he returned. Yeah. He went to the tournament and did amazingly. So well that Guinevere began to think it was him. She sent a servant to this mysterious red knight who told him to, quote, do his worst. And that does not mean what you think it means. She wanted Lancelot to throw the match. Hard and he did. He ran from battle and did so poorly that he was the laughingstock of the whole tournament. Two days of this passed before Guinevere told him to do his best, and he did, beating everyone. This confirmed in her mind that this was Lancelot. He was alive, and he would do whatever she wished. Unfortunately, when the tournament was over, he had to return to prison. He had sworn to this, even though it was a really unjust captivity and all that. As soon as the last night was down, he leapt the fence with his horse and rode off into the horizon. The young women who put on the tournament to find a husband had just watched all of their other prospects being humiliated on the battlefield and they decided that if they couldn't have this mysterious red knight, then they wouldn't have anyone. They all agreed not to marry anyone for a year and that June presumably devastated the Camelot wedding industry. And yeah, if you're wondering how Lancelot beat scores of armed and armored knights in a battle royale, yet was captured by one evil dwarf, well, I'm pretty sure you just gave more thought to his captivity than the writer ever did. Malagant, when he learned that Lancelot had been let out and had returned, was very unhappy that his jailers were not doing really the one thing that defines a jailer, not letting the prisoner go just because he promised you he would return. Malagant built a tower by the sea, had Lancelot put in it, and sealed the door. He paid random servants to come and throw stagnant water and moldy bread in the high window once a week, no one really knowing that Lancelot was inside. 
It was a year after their first fight, and Malagant showed up at King Arthur's court. Oh, Lancelot isn't here? Where could he be? Looks like I get to take Guinevere based on our totally reasonable agreement. He didn't go unchallenged, though, and Gwen said that he would fight the knight in a month's time. If Gwen failed against the muscly-footed knight, then Guinevere would leave with Malagant. Guinevere still not getting a say in all of this. Malagant went home where he bragged to his father that Arthur's court was afraid of him, and that he would be coming back with a famous queen here soon. There was one child of Badamagoo who was sympathetic to Lancelot, Malagant's sister, who was not a fan of her brother kidnapping women, and, as it turns out, she was actually the young woman that met Gawain and Lancelot on the road in the last episode, demanding a promise of them. They rode off before she was able to ask it, but now she had a feeling that her brother might have kidnapped Lancelot. Long story short, she spent the next three weeks combing the land, looking for the very handsome knight, and eventually saw the tower by the ocean. She yelled in the window and found that it was the severely weakened Lancelot. She apparently had a pickaxe in her inventory and tossed it in the open window. He hacked his way out the bottom, and she took him to one of her castles where the staff could be relied upon for discretion. It said that she too fell for him and bathed him, because Lancelot, and then he realized the date. He was supposed to defend Guinevere a month ago. The sister laughed. Oh, you poor, ridiculously handsome fool. No, Gawain is going to fight him. Tomorrow. Lancelot insisted on Gawain, despite his weakness, and the sister outfitted him with armor, weapons, and a horse. He rode for Camelot, unsure if he would make it in time. But as we saw, he did make it in time. I mean, you saw that a few minutes ago when I did the whole Tarantino thing and showed you the end first. There, before King Arthur, Kay... Guinevere, Gawain, everybody. Lancelot revealed himself for the first time since he fought at Badamagoo's castle. Lancelot was seething with hatred, and as he looked on Malagant before him, hated by the world and even his own family, and all the destruction their pointless fighting had brought, Lancelot decided that, that he hated Malagant even more and that this guy needs to die. He told Gawain to please exit the field. He, Lancelot, would be fighting the evil knight. Malagant shouted taunts at Lancelot, who just sat atop his horse, waiting for Arthur to start the match. His blade was sharp and his lance ready. He got the word, and they started jousting. Their lances painfully exploded on one another's armor, and they were unhorsed, hitting the ground hard. In an instant, Lancelot was up, sword out, and hacking at Malagant's armor. It said that the hatred between the two fighters was so great that after they had been dehorsed, even their horses reared up and began biting and kicking at each other. Malagant blocked the hits as best he could, but fighting Lancelot was nearly impossible. Lancelot blocked Malagant's shot seemingly as soon as he thought of them. The kid wouldn't let up, and Malagant stumbled backwards and fell. He knew that if he was going to survive, he would need to get up, and then he saw his opening. He kicked Lancelot's feet out from under him, and the young man went down. Malagant jumped to his muscly feet, but he misjudged this kid. Lancelot had already recovered, and he was already right there. Almost as soon as Malagant realized that he had left himself open, Lancelot was slicing upward, severing his right arm at the shoulder. Yeah, after way too long of a quest, a sword bridge, two fights for Guinevere, and a year in captivity, Lancelot was very much not messing around anymore. Malagant screamed a horrible, screeching cry, and grabbed the stub that was pouring blood out on the ground. Whether he thought it was just a scratch, or he was so beside himself with rage that he just didn't care about his own life anymore, Malagant charged Lancelot, and Lancelot could see his eyes filled with anger, malice, and hatred behind the armor. For someone as skilled in battle as Lancelot, dwarf kidnappings notwithstanding, fighting a one-armed opponent with no sword was about as easy as it got. He dodged the wide swings from Malagant's left hand, and buried his sword in Malagant's neck. Blood gurgled up into his enemy's mouth, and Lancelot was surprised that he kept fighting. He finally stopped when Lancelot pushed his sword all the way through and completely separated his head from his body. Lancelot stood, took off his helmet, and wiped his face. It was over. He looked at the cheering crowds, but there was only one person he was looking for. She was sitting next to the king, her husband, her face streaked with tears of joy that he was alive and back in Camelot. Lancelot rode to his king, Arthur, and bowed low. When he stood, he didn't hear a word Arthur was saying to him. 
he was looking at Guinevere as best he could out of the corner of his eye, as she stood next to her husband. Finally, it was time to talk to her, and he saw her restrained and cordial. She looked deeply, briefly, but deeply, into the eyes of Lancelot, her knight, and told him thank you. She asked that he stay in Camelot for a little while now, and he said that he would do anything she asked of him. She smiled a plate smile and said, I know, and told her husband that this young man, Lancelot was it, would make an excellent addition to his round table. Another knight approached Arthur, which left Lancelot and Guinevere effectively alone in the middle of a crowd. Lancelot looked at her. He needed her to know that this wasn't over, at least not for him. He loved her, and he would find a way to be with her if she wanted. As if she could read his face, she gave him a wink and spun around. As she did, her hand grazed Lancelot's, and his heart jumped. He watched her walk away and join her husband, the king. This was going to be tricky. That night, Arthur looked out across the moorland. Everything was settled for the time being. His wife was here. He had an amazing new knight who, despite having only spent two days at Camelot in the two years since being knighted, was beginning to be better known in the land than all of his other knights put together. Things were starting to calm down a bit. Still, medieval Britain wasn't without its problems. Arthur had been doing this long enough that he knew times of peace weren't permanent, but seemed to be just lulls between conflicts. Since Balin had struck the dollarous blow all those years ago, Britain had been in near constant strife. It was times like this when Merlin would burst through the door in a huff, warning of the next catastrophe. I imagine that even though it was a wizard bursting in your door with yet another existential threat, there was a comfort and excitement in the fact that they would be facing it together. It was the silence that broke Arthur's heart now. Because Merlin wouldn't be opening that door again, Arthur had sent people all around the British Isles and into the continent looking for the wizard, but they hadn't found anything. It seemed Merlin wasn't playing a trick when he told Arthur that they would never see each other again. As Arthur looked out on the cold moorland, he wondered what had become of his old friend and mentor. Nearly one year prior, Merlin had met Vivian just outside the Broseliad forest, a few hours before dusk. It was awkward at first, but they sat down beside a fountain and began talking of all the things that had happened in the years gone by. As they sat against a tree, Vivian began shifting closer and closer to Merlin. The old wizard was confused, but then she rested her head on his chest and began playing with his long beard as they talked. Merlin's heart fluttered. A part of himself that he thought had been lost forever was awakened. He loved her. Merlin and Vivian sat in each other's arms, and Merlin was happy. They heard thunder in the distance. Vivian smiled and brushed back her hair. Her lake and home were through the forest and through the storm. But she knew of a nice cave they could stay in. She rested her hand on Merlin's. A cave they could stay in together. Merlin thought that, yes, that sounds very, very nice. Let's go, like, right now. They walked through the Broseliad forest until they found some tall stones standing in a clearing. Merlin looked. This wasn't really a cave. But Vivian gave his hand a squeeze, went to the stones, and set a spell. They slid apart in the ground as if it was water, revealing a cave and a walkway down into the ground. She said a few other things, and the tunnels began to glow with torches on either side. The wind was starting to pick up, and the storm was getting closer. Then, with a crack of thunder, the rain came down in buckets. Vivian laughed and darted inside the cave. Merlin, despite the rain and his weariness from travel, smiled wide and ran in after her. It struck Merlin as his hand went into hers, and they walked through the corridors of the underground mansion that she had apparently prepared, that he had been living a life full of intrigue, danger, and incredibly high stakes since he was seven years old. Now, he was finally beginning to feel free, to feel happy. It was too bad it took nearly 60 years, but at least it happened. He put an arm around Vivian. She was laughing and beaming. She opened the door in front of them. It was a beautiful bedroom, 
She told him that she had been working on this place for a year. This could be their hideaway from the troubles of the world. Like one long holiday. They saw the soft bed, and Vivian kissed Merlin and eased him down onto the bed. They heard the thunder crack outside, and Vivian swore she forgot to close the front door. Merlin told her not to worry about it. She said no and played with his beard. Trust me, we don't want to be interrupted. She kissed Merlin and said she'd be right back. As soon as he watched her, walking quickly down the lighted hallway, he dropped back on the bed. He never, in his life, remembered being this happy, this in love, this excited about the future. He was so at peace, relaxed and sleepy after a day's travel, that he closed his eyes and drifted off to sleep before she returned. In his dreams, they were traveling the world together. They were in the frozen north, then traversing the kingdoms of Italy, then sailing to Byzantium, happy and in love, living at whatever time they had left, together. She turned to him, the ocean air flowing through her hair, and whispered something in his ear. He almost caught it before he woke up. Merlin's head ached as if a rock was jutting into him. Even before opening his eyes, his tailbone, back, and elbows were sore too. He would need to talk with Vivian about this bed. He rolled over, and his fingertips hit hard stone. His eyes snapped open, but he wasn't in the warm, pleasant room where he had fallen asleep. But on a stone bed, in the drafty darkness, light was coming from down the hallway, and Merlin relaxed when he saw Vivian standing in the doorway. He saw her sling a pack over her back. Vivian, what happened to the room? Merlin asked her. Are we going? Did the storm stop? Vivian? We are not going, Vivian said to him. In a flash, Merlin was off the stone bed and into the hallway, or would have been, if he wasn't knocked back by an invisible wall that completely blocked the doorway. The 60-year-old man stumbled backwards, dazed only for a moment before calling forth fire from his hands to attack the doorway. Vivian stood on the other side, watching the fire hit the invisible barrier and flare out in every direction. When Merlin was finished with the door, he blasted the ceilings and the other walls, but they seemed to be impervious to his power. The room had been sealed. What have you done? Merlin asked. Only what you taught me to do when I was 12, and you tricked me into promising to marry you, Vivian said. Do you know what it's like to have the most powerful person in the land hunting you, or you have to leave your home to avoid putting yourself and everyone you care about in danger? Merlin said, well, actually, there was this guy named Vortigern, and... But Vivian didn't want to hear it. She told him her childhood had ended the day she met the lecherous old man. She had to leave her family and her country because of him. She lived in fear for decades that he would come and demand his promise fulfilled. She didn't know when he would turn on her, but she knew she couldn't trust him. Ever. And him being trapped in here was the only way she would ever be safe from him. The wonderful bedroom? That had all been an illusion. What did he expect would happen? Merlin said he expected to be with her to run away together. He sat back on the hard stone slab in the room that would be his tomb. I saw this. I knew it would happen. And yet I still came, Merlin said, meeting her eyes mournfully. That gave Vivian pause. If he had seen this like he could see other things, then why did he come? Merlin said simply, love. And as an aside, maybe Merlin didn't know what would happen after this moment, or Maybe he just wanted to believe that he could change the future that he saw. His powers weren't perfect. We've talked about that in the past. But maybe he wanted to live in a world where he could love and be loved. And the near certainty of betrayal was worth it. In the event that it was remotely possible for him to be with her, Vivian wrapped her cloak around her head and pulled her pack back up to her shoulder. Goodbye, Merlin, she said. Her hatred for him had long dried any tears that might come from their final parting. You can scream if you want. You're deep underground and there isn't anyone for miles. I left a pack of food in the corner. My advice, don't eat it. It'll only prolong the inevitable. Merlin went to the doorway 
and rested his hand on the invisible wall. Vivian, please, he said. Don't do this. When he saw that that wasn't getting him anywhere, he asked for one final kindness. She knew a spell to put him to sleep, so that only she could wake him. She had used it on him the night before, and if she said it now, he could go to sleep and simply never wake up. He would waste away and die, but he would do so dreaming of a world where they could be together. She gave him a melancholy smile and put her hand on his, separated only by a thin, impenetrable magic wall. Then the smile faded, and she pulled her hand away. She said, simply, no, turned and walked away. She took the only torch with her, and if she would have looked back, she would have seen Merlin still standing in the doorway, slowly sinking into the darkness that she left behind her. When she reached the mouth of the cave, she slid the stones back together and began the journey back to her lake, not looking over her shoulder fearfully for the first time in 20 years. No one knows how long it took, in the end, but Merlin died down there, cold and alone. His body was never found, and the half-demon who had guided kings and preserved his people in a dangerous world passed into legend. One year later, Arthur was beginning to get cold, looking out on Camelot and the moorlands beyond the walls. Wherever Merlin, his old friend and mentor was, Arthur hoped that he had finally found some peace. But in truth, Arthur would grow old, always wondering what happened to his friend. As Arthur surveyed his kingdom, he knew that he had grown into a capable king, surrounded by people that he could trust completely, like his wife, Guinevere, and the Knights of the Round Table. Whatever happened, he knew that he could trust them. Whatever tomorrow held, he knew that they could face it, together. Yeah, it's super sad, but that is the end of Merlin. He was such a contradiction, mainly because the legend was written by several authors over centuries, but I'll kind of miss the murdery, creepy, legendary wizard. He was a mainstay of the stories early on, and it's a brave new world without him. It should be noted that my treatment of Vivian is very 21st century. Like I said, there are so many different stories of her. Later authors split the character into two different people, one being the kind, matronly woman who raised Lancelot, and the other being a vile seductress, an enchantress that ultimately traps and kills Merlin. The later stories after Mallory seem to ignore the fact that Merlin very much harassed and doggedly pursued the Lady of the Lake. To call her just some power-mad enchantress who seduces and traps Merlin really, really minimizes his role in the whole thing. This whole thing is sad, though, and personally, I don't think anyone is in the right. In my version, Merlin really messed up Vivian's life, but I think him starving to death alone in a cave is a pretty harsh punishment. Also, there are some super weird versions where Merlin literally says, I know you're about to trap me, but I love you so much that I will now teach you the spell to trap me, because I am powerless in the face of your love. To me, that's completely ridiculous. I brought that perspective into the story as best I could, without bringing it completely. Basically, what I'm saying is that I had to do some narrative gymnastics to make the Lady of the Lake story work, but I tried to include as many of the versions as I could, and still have it be a somewhat believable story. Given that no one story makes sense, but I had to tell the story, I mean, it's the story of Merlin's death, this particular episode between Merlin and Vivian is kind of close to well-researched medieval King Arthur fan fiction. I've written on the discussion post what I got from where for this particular story. Also, the imprisonment of Merlin, it's in different places in a tree, in a rock, and under a rock, and in a cave. So I went with the cave because it made the most sense, but there are a lot of different versions. The relationship between Lancelot and Guinevere is very much not over, as they both walk a dangerous line. What they've started here is very bad for them, Arthur, and the round table, and it will have consequences for the entirety of Great Britain. Those consequences will have to wait, though, as we go through and talk about the other characters, leading up to the quest for the Holy Grail. The next King Arthur run will be Gawain, though, but that won't be next week. Next week is the story of Yi Qian, one of the earliest Cinderella stories from China. 
It's a Cinderella story unlike any you've ever heard before. And like most fairy tales, it's equal parts bizarre, hilarious, and deeply troubling. I'm going to forego the thank yous this week because I have a quick announcement. We're in the process of making another show. It's going to be a little different in that it's focused on people who actually exist. It's about people, their jobs, and their stories. If you'd like to possibly be interviewed for this new podcast, then just follow the link in the show notes. And yes, I will absolutely announce the new show on this podcast when it finally comes out. And, as usual, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a full-sized carcass of a wild boar, you can get extra episodes, ad-free versions of this podcast, and source pack ebooks that won't make your mail person hate you for making them lug a 100-pound box containing a wild animal carcass up your steps. I've been doing these weird product things for almost a year, and I'm surprised that I'm surprised that you can get a full bore delivered to your house off of Amazon. Anyway, if you're interested in the membership, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Lamanach from Basque folklore. They are tiny fey creatures, or magical fairy-like creatures, that live underground. They will come and clean your house, and you can tell that they are a mythological creature because they have duck feet. Also because they are tiny fairies cleaning your house. They're kind of like an anti-Santa, but not in the Krampus way, because they will come down your chimney, and instead of leaving gifts, they will just take your infant. Can I just say, there's been way too much infant stealing on the podcast recently. I mean, infant stealing is really one of those things where once is too many, but really, magical creatures really need to stop stealing people. Anyway, if you catch them in the act, they'll be really confusing because they always say the exact opposite of what they mean. This is made all the more odd because all the Lamanach are named William. I can't imagine how confusing and seemingly passive-aggressive that whole society would be. I mean, imagine trying to make plans. Hi, William. I don't want to hang out tonight. That sounds horrible, William. Neither do I. Want to not be there at 8? No, I won't be there. Neither will I. You're a terrible friend, William. And for my reading, I actually think the women are named William as well. The Lamanach are supposedly extremely seductive, if you're into tiny magical creatures with animal feet. And they can also be found on the other side of the rainbow, combing their hair. They're afraid of tiny churches built in the woods, and just church bells in general. That's about it for one of the weirdest creatures that we've done so far. If podcasts have mascots, I think William, the passive-aggressive, duck-footed gnome, would be a pretty strong contender. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.